Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, turn to Isaiah 37. Isaiah 37 is where we're going to be. And uh, as we make our way through the Bible there, we are, or make our way through Isaiah, we're stopping here at Isaiah 37. As you turn there, um, a couple of weeks ago, maybe like two weeks ago, a week and a half or so ago, we got a fire pit. Told you all about that. We got this little fire pit from Lowe's, a little cheap one. And then we ordered some Adirondack chairs, which I think are um, a fun word to say. And so we got some Adirondack chairs, which are not very comfortable, but they look really cool. And so we got about five of those because um, there's five of us. And uh, my son and I, my oldest son, had an he decides he's going to help me put these things together, all right? And, and that's cool. This little father-son time. It, it came with, um, with the basic tools, like one Allen wrench that we're going to put these five chairs together with. And uh, as they were delivered, we, we brought them out there, and we opened the first box. We laid it all out there, and I showed him that it's okay to be a man and read the instructions. And so we laid those instructions out, and we, we laid out all the pieces, and, I, and, and we walked through building the first one, and we did a good job. Uh, we put it together, we set it down, we sat in it, and we, 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 we talked a little bit about making everybody else build their own, um, but we decided we're going we're gonna to build the rest of these. The second one, we did similar, but this time, this time we didn't want to look at the instructions as much, okay? We had already seen the instructions, we had already seen an example, right? And now we were going to build this thing on our own mostly. And so about 75% uh, consult the instructions. There was one time where we had to take an arm off and flip it around and put it back on, all right? And that happens if you're not really looking at the instructions. We got done with the second one. That turned out great. And I'm, I'm proud to say that Adirondack chair number three, four, and five were all put together perfectly without looking at those instructions at all. We felt accomplished. We felt like we did something manly. And uh, now we have five Adirondack chairs. My point is this, that that is an illustration or an example of the ways in which we learn, the ways in which we can pick up information. How many of you are uh, visual learners? You learn by seeing an example, okay? How many of you need to read it? You have to read the instructions. Anybody? That's fewer. There's a few people. How many of you are, are, are uh, audible? Like you have to hear the instruction. You can't just see the, you, can, you need to hear somebody explain it, Okay. And I am, uh, I have to write things. And so um, kind of scribble, take notes or, or something. If you could see my notes right here, even though they're digital, there are handwritten notes all over. Anybody like me, you need to scribble it out and that way you can learn. Yeah, we learn in different ways. We learn through different examples and different illustrations. Today's text in Isaiah 37 is literally a visual illustration of what we talked about last week. Last week's main point was that when you feel threatened, then you should run to God. Don't run to Egypt. Run to the lion. Run to the eagle. Don't run to uh, lesser gods, the things that we build with our own hands, moles and bats. Run to God and trust Him. That was the point of last week's sermon. This week shows us that. And I think that's helpful. I think because a lot of us learn by reading, but then a lot of us need to see an example. And so when we're done today, when we read Isaiah 37, we're going to walk away with seeing what it looks like for a person, in this case, King Hezekiah, to run toward God 
in a time of threat. Let's pray together, and then we will look at the story, and then specifically the prayer. God, thank you for this opportunity to gather together. We, we thank you for those who are tuning in online right now. They are watching live. They are gathered safely in their homes or are with friends. God, I pray that you would bless those gatherings. I pray that you would bless this gathering, that you would continue to work in and through our church um, as we meet in person, as we meet online, that the gospel would go out, that you would protect our unity and our health. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. I asked this week on social media, like, what is your favorite Old Testament story? Got a lot of responses, a lot of responses. Uh, some folks liked Esther. Other people were like, uh, you know, King David. Somebody mentioned uh, the tent peg through the, the temple of the one dude. And so that's a good story too, you know. And there's a bunch of cool stories that are in the Old Testament. This one is one of my favorite. I like it because it's really uh, cinematic. There, there's just, I can see a really good movie um, being done on this scene. Isaiah 37 and 36 and some of the, the area that goes around there. This is the story. This is, this is what's happening. King Sennacherib of Assyria has marched into uh, the, the Middle East there, into that um, Israel territory there. He's already taken over what we call the northern kingdom, or you might refer to that as Israel, okay? The kingdom divided in two in the northern kingdom, Israel, has fallen to uh, the Assyrians, fallen to King Sennacherib. And he has been marching into the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is, and he's marching, he's taking over all of these strong cities, all these little towns. And you can picture in the movie that they don't spend a lot of time on it, but, you know, there's these scenes of people crying and, and, and corpses and, and smoke and rubble. That's, that's what's going on as, as this big, mean Assyrian nation is marching in through Judah, and they're getting closer to Jerusalem, the, the capital of Judah, where King Hezekiah is. And as they approach, as they all kind of march up, you can see them all just kind of marching up. They've got elephants and, and giant wagons and stuff. I don't know, just, just Assyrian war stuff, you know, tanks and planes. And they're all marching up to the outside of Jerusalem, and they just sort of stop. And there's this quiet as the, as the dust rolls out there. The, the people in Judah, or the people in Jerusalem, they send out a delegation. You can't send out the king to talk to the enemy, all right? So he's still in there. Um, behind the walls there. They send out a delegate. They shut the gates. And uh, a group of men from the Assyrians, they walk up to this group that's coming out from Jerusalem and they meet there. The Assyrians say to the folks from Jerusalem, they say, listen, you have two choices. You can either surrender or you can die. That's your only two choices. Well, the guys from Jerusalem, they say, shh, quiet down. Don't say so much. Don't be quiet. Keep your voice down. And, spe and specifically, don't talk to us in Hebrew. Talk to us in Assyrian. Don't talk to us in Hebrew because we have all these people up on the gates, up on the walls, and they can hear you. And if they hear what you're saying now, they're going to they're gonna lose hope. They're going to get defeated. They're going to they're gonna be scared. And so the decent, fine Assyrians that they are looked and they saw all those people standing up on the walls listening, and they yell real loud in Hebrew. And they said, listen, you have two options. You can surrender or you can die. And they say... Don't listen to your king. Don't listen to Hezekiah. Hezekiah is going to tell you just to wait on your God. But has any gods stopped us? There's no God that can stop the Assyrians. This, of course, makes everybody on the walls scared. They, their hearts melt with fear. They write this all down. They give it to the, the folks from Jerusalem. And, and, and the folks from Jerusalem run back into the gates. They shut the gates. Everybody out there, you know, they're setting up their camp. 
They run and give it to Hezekiah. Hezekiah reads it, and in his fear, in his uh, uh, being scared, he takes this letter to the temple, and he lays it out. It says he lays it out in front of God, and then he prays to God. And then that night, Isaiah, God through the prophet Isaiah, speaks to the king. And then the Bible says that that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, there were all of these dead bodies. And so King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and left, and he returned home and lived in Nineveh. This really intense scene settles as the sun begins to rise, and you can, you can see the mist start to burn off. And, and what you notice is that giant camp of soldiers is now a giant camp of dead bodies. Sennacherib goes home, and a little later, his two sons execute him, primarily because he was such a failure in Judah. That's primarily why Sennacherib dies. And so like I said, you can see this cinematic um, uh, characteristic to the story. And, and it does teach us, like I said, of an illustration of a person who trusted God and they were threatened, so they run to God. Y'all see that? That's, that's what the story is. But I want to loop back this morning and look specifically at his prayer. What did Hezekiah pray? And then what does that mean to us? And how do we see this uh, illustration of, in other words, we're supposed to run to God. Great. But what does that look like? What does it actually mean to run to God? That's what we're going to see um, from Hezekiah. As I said, you can find this story in 2 Kings 19. You can find it in 2 uh, Chronicles. Isaiah is where we're going to focus in all three areas. It's nearly word, uh, word for word the same. Isaiah 37, 14 through 20 says this, Hezekiah took the letter from the messenger's hands and read it, and then he went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. And then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. This is what he prays. Lord of armies, God of Israel enthroned between the cherubim, you are God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear all the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God, and that's you. Lord, it is true that the king of Assyria have devastated all of these countries and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire, for they were, they were not gods made, um, but made from wood and stone by human hands. So they have destroyed them. Now, Lord our God, Save us from his power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God, you alone. That's, that's the prayer. Let's look at it. It's got three parts to it. The first part is the way that Hezekiah speaks to God. How do you refer to God? When you're praying, how, how do you say, what, what do you call God? I've heard people say, our Father. Some people say, uh, uh, Lord God. Some people say, dear God. I've even heard some people start their prayers with daddy, which makes me uncomfortable, but that's what they say, all right? Different people say different things. How do you start your prayer? If I was to ask you that right now, some of you are sitting there and go, man, I don't even know. Well, okay, start praying right now. I, I know you're like, no. the first two words, the first two words is how you normally, that's how we refer to God. And people say a bunch of different things, right? Uh, they say a bunch of different characteristics, and it has a lot to do with tradition. It has a lot to do with how you learn to pray. Another illustration of how you can see this is the way that sometimes men will talk about their wives, okay? 
And I mean this in a good way, so I don't saw some of you get all bristly. Uh, I'm just talking about like the way they refer. Sometimes you'll hear a man refer to his wife as his girlfriend, right? We know that this is why. That's, that's probably the most common way that I refer to Jackie. She's my girlfriend, all right? Sometimes you'll hear a man refer to his wife as, as his bride, right? Wife is the top, right? We get that. Um, but there's all these other like, um, I hate to say pet names. That's, that, you're not allowed to do that anymore. Um, but, you know, these little, these ways that we refer to one another, those sort of things. And so that's an example. Another way that you can hear this is the, all the names you might call your dog. All right? And so the, just depending on your mood and what the dog just did, you have a different name, right, um, for what you're going to refer to the dog. We know that in the way that we speak, we can change the way that we address something based on the emotion or the situation. We can just change it based on the emotion or the situation. A lot of that's what's going on right here. He says uh, all of these different titles and these different names for God, and it all has to do with the way that he is perceiving God at that point. He says, Lord of armies. That's a great place to start, right? If Sennacherib's army is outside of your gates, then you really need to get God and his armies on your side. God, I know you have an army, He has an army. I need your army. God of Israel. Now, we read this most often to refer to the idea of of the nation. We, We read that and we kind of think, God of the nation of Israel. But that's not commonly the way that they would have understood it. They weren't referring to God of our nation. They were referring to God of the person Israel. That there is this God who has a person. No, it's historic but there's this personal historic nature to who God is, enthroned between the cherubim. Now, cherubim are those two angels. Y'all remember the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the thing that Indiana Jones was looking for? That thing had those angels on the top, and those angels, their wings touched, that sort of uh, situation. That was the Ark of the Covenant, and those are the cherubim. That's what's being referred to here, enthroned between the cherubim. It is an allusion to the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus, when God is telling Moses how to build that ark, this is what he says. I will meet with you there above the mercy seats between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony or the ark of the covenant. I will speak with you from there about all that I command you regarding the Israelites. And so when Hezekiah says... You are the God who is enthroned between the cherubim. He is referring to the concept that not only is God historic, not only has God been their God for a long time, but he is currently their God. Remember, he took that letter into the temple, and he's essentially saying, you are our God. Your throne is right there. Your throne is called mercy. And so there's all of this imagery, all of this meaning behind what Hezekiah is calling God at that point. He says, you are God, you alone. This is probably the largest theme to Hezekiah's prayer. If I was going to preach a one-point sermon, don't get excited, I have three points. But if I was going to preach a one-point sermon, this would be that point. Why? Because the concept is repeated over and over. In 16, you are God, you alone. In 19, for they were not God. Speaking of the fake gods. And then again in verse 20, you, Lord, are God, you alone. The main theme is the exclusivity, the, 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 the singular spot that God occupies as the one and the only God. He does this because the Assyrians are so arrogant, proud, of all the nations, of all the other gods that they destroyed. 
Isaiah 36, 18 through 20. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you by saying, so this is the Assyrians yelling to the guys and the people and the women and the children that are all up on the, on the fence there. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you by saying, the Lord will rescue us. Has any one of the gods of the nations rescued his land from the power of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamas or Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have, have they rescued Samaria from my power? Who among all the gods of these lands ever rescued his land from my power? So will the Lord rescue Jerusalem from my power? Hezekiah at this point is praying, God, you heard all of the gods they say that they defeated. But of course they defeated those gods because you alone are God. There is no other God. You don't stand above others. There's no one else to stand above. You are exclusively the God of all the kingdoms of the earth. This is an important point, and it's important not only to them, but to us as well. He says, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you are God. It reminds us that God does not need your affirmation nor your confirmation to be God. Listen, there can be councils of people, there can be legislation, there can be nations, there can be people who rise up and say that God is not God, and it does not change the reality that God is still the God, that there is no other God next to him. The Assyrians very boldly and arrogantly said, you don't have a God. And God says, I will show you differently, right? He is the only God of all the kingdoms of the earth. And the same is true of the kingdoms of your soul. You can pretend, you can act as if there is no God and it does not change the reality that God is still God. You can say whatever you want to say, God is still God. And it's an important principle for us to recall. He's not needing your confirmation. He's not, you didn't leash him up because you decide not to worship him. He's God. If he finishes his uh, address by saying, you made the heavens and the earth. Extremely important doctrine. It's a foundational concept that we understand that God reveals himself as the creator God. This means that God is the authority of what he has created. Foundationally, the Bible starts with this story. In the beginning, God created. And so for us to understand true theology, theology, for us to understand the grand narrative, for us to understand all of the doctrines of the Bible, we have to start in a place that says God is the creator king. So what he creates, he establishes. What he says goes. Why? Because he created everything. And so it, it applies in a number of areas in our life. When God says that um, God created them male and female, that's the way that he created them. And then he says that it is good. We don't have the authority to question that. We don't have the authority or the ability to change that. Why? Because the creator king says there is male and there's female and that is good. That's how that works its way out. We have to start in a place that there is a creator, that our God is the creator king which would make a lot of sense of why creationism is always under attack. If you can pull that Jenga block out, then everything else falls. But he is the creator king. In addressing God this way, Hezekiah is laying this foundation. He's making some bold claims that are going to lay the foundation for what he's about to ask. In addressing God with all of these names and all these ways, he's saying that God is all-powerful, compassionate, a loyal and faithful God. He is unrivaled. There is no one next to God. 
And this is important. Why? Because one of the reasons we don't run to God, one of the reasons we don't um, uh, go toward God when we feel threatened is because we forget to see him as he is. We lose sight of his abilities. We, we don't remember all of the strength and the power that he has. A.W. Tozer says that what you think when you think of God, what, what, what pops in your mind when you think of God is the most important of all of your beliefs. What we consider God, it's foundational understanding. Do you fully and totally see God as he is? As all-powerful, historic, and personal, as unrivaled, faithful, and true. Do you see God in that way? Hezekiah did. Hezekiah saw him that way. And so Hezekiah, when he feels threatened, runs to God. The reason we don't is because we forget God is that way. 17 through 19 shifts its focus just a little bit. Look, 17 says, Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear all the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but made from wood and stone by human hands. So they have destroyed them. The, the shift here focuses from talking about who God is to talking about who Sennacherib is. Now listen, he says, God, listen and hear see and understand. And he, he's not confused. Hezekiah doesn't think that there's something that God missed. Hezekiah fully understands that God understands the situation far better than even Hezekiah understands it. What, what he's saying when he's saying, listen and hear is this poetic way of God, give special attention. Give special attention to what's going on. And then he says, he sort of shifts and, and tattles on Sennacherib. He says he's destroyed countries and devastated lands. In other words, Hezekiah says, God, there's a guy outside of our gate, and he's mad, and he's mean, and he's mighty. God, there is a big threat outside of our gate. You see how there is a shift there. He's been talking about who God is and all of his characteristics and, and those names, and he's shifting now to talk about Sennacherib. He holds him up. But what's important for us to understand here, what's, what, what's, what's very uh, key in our understanding of the prayer is not that Hezekiah is not propping Sennacherib up against God. Hezekiah is not saying, God, you are the Lord of armies, and Sennacherib has a big army. God, you are uh, all-powerful, and you are strong, and, and Sennacherib is strong. He's not propping these two up. He's not laying open his soul and his heart to say, God, I know I should trust you, but he is, he is so strong and he is so mighty and I am so afraid. I don't believe that Hezekiah is propping Sennacherib up against God. When you read the prayer, what I think Hezekiah is doing is propping Sennacherib, Sennacherib up against himself. When he prays, there's no confusion in Hezekiah's mind that like, Ooh, I wonder which one's going to win this. God is strong and he's strong. I'm not real sure. What he's praying is Sennacherib is strong. He has devastated lands and countries. And I am not. I am not able to defeat this. I am not able to overcome this threat. God, he is threatening everything I hold dear, including my entire country and my family, my friends, my army, my people. And I need you. See, it's wildly important that we understand not only who God is, but also who we are not. 
that we have limitations. That's not to say that Hezekiah was weak or dumb or did not have the ability. In fact, 2 Chronicles 32, 2-5 says this, Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he planned and that he planned war on Jerusalem. So he consulted with his officials and his warriors about stopping up the water of the springs that were outside of the city, and they helped him. Many people gathered, and they stopped up all the springs and the streams that flowed through the land. They said to themselves, they said, why should the king of Assyria come and find abundant water? Then Hezekiah strengthened his position by rebuilding the entire broken down walls and heightened the towers and the other outside walls. And he repaired the supporting terraces of the city of David, that's Jerusalem, and made an abundance of weapons and shields. Hezekiah is not stupid. Hezekiah is a good king. He's a smart king. He sees Sennacherib come and he says, here's what we're going to do. Let's stop up all the water. So when that army gets here, they don't have any water. We know historically and from other parts of the Bible that at different times, Hezekiah goes off and he has uh, the people dig through the bedrock, through the mountain, out to those springs and reroutes the spring into the walls of Jerusalem. And so when the enemy comes, they don't have any water. Where's all the water? Inside the gates. This is, this is perfect... Um, like it's a siege sort of battle warfare. And he is very smart on that. He has a strong wall, lots of weapons, a big army, and he has water. And yet he still looks at the situation and says, I need help. So when you go to God, when we recognize that God is God and that we are not, when you go to God, I'm not saying that you're not smart. Hezekiah was smart. I'm not saying that you're not strong. He had a wall and he had an army. I'm also not saying that you're insignificant. He's the king. Our humility before God has nothing to do with our insignificance. It is primarily about God's significance, about his power and about his strength. Uh, My sons, all of them, have gone through a certain phase in their life, okay? And we're still in uh, one of these phases. There's a certain moment Um, with my sons, and this is probably true of any sons. I don't know. These are just the only three I have. And so it's probably true of any sons. It may be true of little girls as well. But there's this moment in which children realize I'm small and I don't like it. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I can't and I hate that. I want to be stronger. I want to be taller. I don't need any help. I am small and I hate it. And so there's, there's the seasons where um, one of them will, will fail at something or will attempt something and they're not able to. And the other brothers lovingly make fun of them until, until they start crying, you know. And I have to step into that situation and be like, look, listen, stop making fun of them. Also, listen, it's okay. It's fine. Like, you just are the way that you are for now. You'll grow more later, but you may, like, um, you know, with two of them in particular, look at your mom and I. You're not ever going to be tall, all right? That's just sway it is, and you're probably going to go bald. So um, just deal with it, right? And so there's just this acceptance. When I was, uh, even this morning, we were setting up that, uh, that new here tent, that start here tent that was out there, and um, we were all out there working on it, and we popped it up all the way to the high, and I couldn't reach the thing to snap it. And I'm like standing on my, t- I had to yell for Bradley to come over and help me because I'm just short. I'm just short. That's just, you know, it's just the way it is. And we know as, as uh, parents, and you know as grown-ups, eventually you get to the point where it's like, this is just, this is how good it's going to get, all right? This is how tall I'm going to be. Um, this is how um, not handsome I am. And you just got to kind of like accept that. And that's not a bad thing. 
It's not a bad thing to finally accept this. And so, however, in our spiritual life and in our Christian walk, at some point we have to realize this, and it's unbelievably helpful in your maturity in Christianity, is that I am just a human. I can't figure all of this stuff out. I can't fix all of the things. I can't protect all the people I want to protect. I can't help or hug or, or, or accept all the people that need a community. I can't fix all that is broken. When we accept that, when we realize that, like I'm going to try as hard as I can, but I can't, then we truly have a picture of who God is. When we accept those sort of things, Hezekiah got to the point where he realized that no matter how strong he is, how much water they had, the weapons and the wall, that he still needed God. And that moves us on to the third and the final part of the prayer. God is God, I am not, and God does. So the question that rises is, why does God do what he does? Verse 20, now the Lord our God saves us, or he prays, now the Lord our God save us from his power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God, you alone. The motivation behind what God does is not selfishness. It's not self-centered in the way that we understand self-centeredness. He says, Lord God, save us. The primary motivation that Hezekiah was appealing to was this concept that God saves us. Now there's two implications to that, two primary implications. The first one is one of physical salvation. Hezekiah is literally praying, God, I don't want to die. I don't want anybody else to die. God, save us. And, and that's a good prayer. We pray that. We pray that sometimes. You pray that uh, when you're trying to ask God to protect your family from the virus. We pray that kind of prayer if we find out that our child has cancer. We pray that sort of prayer when we hear that our mother had a heart attack. We pray that sort of prayer when we're driving down the street and there's a car accident and we're praying that, that nobody is hurt. We're praying that nobody has to die. We pray that because we serve a God who by his own sovereignty and by his own discretion will on occasion step in and physically save us. We pray that because he's a good and he's a benevolent God. Now does he always know and I don't understand why he does and why he doesn't but I do know this that God does physically save people according to his sovereignty and according to his discretion. We pray that even though we know that ultimately we will all die. We pray that God would save even though that ultimately we know that in the end we fall victim to that. So he's praying for physical salvation, but he's also praying for this other, I think, greater meaning, the salvation of souls the Bible has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. That salvation for its end is the thing that God is up to. From the very beginning to the very end, God is about the salvation of souls. That's where the story starts. That's where the story is ultimately going to go. When we read this story, we should see a real physical human king in a temple behind the walls praying that God would stop the enemy that's on the other side of the walls. But we should also be reminded that our very real souls behind this, this wall of our bodies are being threatened by all sorts of demons and all sorts of evil and all sorts of corrupt worldview. We have that sort of threat and we have to pray at some point, God, save my soul because I can't do this on my own. I need you to save me. This is what God is about. And the Bible says that if you will stop putting your trust 
in your own walls and in your own weapons and in the spring that you dug and you put your trust in God, then God will step in. And that night, God destroyed their enemy. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but to all to come to repentance. God wants you to repent. God wants you to come to him. God wants to save you. It had the exact effect. This is, this is what God is motivated by. Not only is he trying to save people, but he, or for their good, as we often say around here, but he is also about his own glory. See, God works for his own glory, and that is right, and that is true. We cannot have a God. You cannot worship God. God cannot be God if he gives worth or worship to something else. God is the supreme. And so God is about his glory. Even in the salvation of other people, he does that because it brings glory to him. That's what's going on here, and that's what we should be about. Hezekiah was saying, Lord, God, save us from the power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God, you alone. It is for his glory and for his honor. Second Chronicles 32, 22 through 23. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the power of King Sennacherib of Assyria and from the power of all others. He gave them rest on every side. Many were bringing an offering to the Lord in Jerusalem and valuable gifts to King Hezekiah of Judea or Judah. And he was exalted in the eyes of the Lord uh, or in, all, in the eyes of all the nations after that. It had the effect that God was working towards. The salvation of people and the glory of God. The good of others and the glory of God. That is God's motivation. That is what God is always doing. The good of other people and his glory. And so that's what we participate in. That's what we join in. That's why for that reason that we are concerned about getting the gospel to out all the nations. Why? So that all the kingdoms of the earth will know the Lord. That's why we work here in our community, um, serving other people that have needs, helping other people in their times of concern. That's why we support efforts that put the Bible in the hands of college students. Why? So that all all the kingdoms will know the Lord. That's what Hezekiah was about, and that's what we are about. This is the picture of what we discussed last week. The very thing that God was wanting them to do, that everybody ran toward God and trusted him, that when they were threatened, they went to the Lord. So what do you do about this? My encouragement for you this morning is to, to start a list you may have been in a Bible study before that talks about like uh, Jehovah Jireh or the names of God. And I think that's good, but I think a lot of times that falls short because it's in Hebrew, because it's a language we don't speak. Maybe you open your Bible and, and on the front cover, the back cover, somewhere in your Bible, you start writing down the, the ways God um, depicts himself. You start writing down those things. Because I asked you, what is your favorite stories? What is your favorite stories in the Old Testament? And so I'm asking you now, how does God reveal himself in those stories? When, when, you, when your story is of a flood and a family, then God reveals himself as, as the Savior, as the one who's going to protect, as the one who's going to provide. When your story is about a woman who can't provide for herself, she's lost her husband and her um, brother-in-law and her father-in-law, and she's literally begging for herself and her mother-in-law. And through that, God is, uh, has a plan. God is providing for her. 
So you could write down these stories. You can write down these names in the front of your Bible. You can write down that God is a provider and a protector and a savior and a hero and God is king. You write down that because the more that you do that, the more that you are going to run toward him in your times of need. Halloween is coming up. And I know I'm a bad Baptist preacher when I say, I really like Halloween, all right? Um, in the first service, I said something along the lines of like, I love everything about it. And I don't. I know that there's stuff you're not supposed to love about it. Um, history and all that. But I like the way we do it, okay? I do. And I'm not really apologizing about that. I like the cooler weather. I like all the children coming to my house in their little costumes. I like giving them candy. I like all the neighbors standing out in the front and talking to one another. I love all of that stuff. I think that stuff is fun, and um, I really, really enjoy it. One of the things I'm really excited about this Halloween is that our deacons are doing a first responders celebration. And so that's going to be right here on our campus on Halloween, and they are going to be loving on these families. So if you know someone who's fire or police or emergency medical or anything, I know there's a bunch of different variations of all of that, then I want, I want you to encourage them to come and just be appreciated, all right? So that's going to be another cool thing that I love about Halloween. One thing I've noticed about Halloween is that certain neighborhoods get targeted. Have y'all noticed this? Certain neighborhoods get targeted. There are neighborhoods where everybody knows if you go to that neighborhood, you're going to get some good candy, all right? There's going to be lots of houses with good candy, that sort of thing. They also know there's other neighborhoods where most of the lights are off and, and the few lights that are on are handing out like Werther's or something. And so nobody's, nobody's going to that neighborhood. Nobody wants that. And so they go over here to the good neighborhood. I saw on Facebook that somebody posted that he discovered that one of his rival neighborhood dads was handing out full-size candy bars. So he's going to be giving every child that visits his house a side of ribs, all right? So there's this, you got to know where the good neighborhood is. And, and I'd be lying if I, if I didn't say that there's a couple times back in Texas when the Kings and the Halleck's, who are our best friends down there, uh, we'd load up in the minivan and we'd go to certain neighborhoods and we'd shove those kids out there and say, bring daddy back a Snicker bar, you know? And so go get some good candy, you know, because I'm going to eat some of this. The good neighborhoods, the good stuff, when you know, you go towards the good stuff. One of the problems we have as Christians, one of the reasons we struggle so much with running toward God when we feel threatened, like last week and this week, is we forget that God is the good stuff. We forget that he is the great provider. We forget that he is the Lord of armies, the protector, that he has historically always been with us and he always will be, that he sits on a throne called mercy and that he loves us, and that he's kind, and that he created us for his purposes and his plans, and so we give him glory in that. I pray that today, Hezekiah's prayer would remind you of the good stuff God is, and that we would run toward him in our times of need. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.